Well, as you can see from the screen, we're in this series of uh, talks and uh, services concerning everybody welcome. What does a gospel church look like? So let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we turn to look at these words that were written by the Apostle James to the local Christians in the Church of Jerusalem, we pray, Lord, that uh, you might speak to us through your Holy Spirit, that we become more like Jesus. Amen. Well, a story uh, to start with. Good. A story to start with. A story of what happened one morning at a church. There were two new visitors that day to the church. One pulled up in a brand new BMW. He was in his mid-thirties and obviously in good shape. He wasn't wearing a suit, but you could tell he was wearing expensive clothes and his watch was a Rolex. As a group of people gathered around to admire his car and to welcome him, another visitor walked down the driveway. He smelt really bad. His clothes were dirty and torn. He really had let himself go. Well, the welcomer at the door decided it was best that he he sit in the meeting place because he'd still be able to see and hear the service, but his smell won't put us off. Besides, we want him as far away from the collection dish as possible. As his chair is being set up, the guy who owned the BMW has been warmly greeted by a dozen people. They're all more than willing to get to know him. The other visitor slinks away home unnoticed. Now, this is a story that is designed to hurt us. So why does it hurt us? Well, perhaps because deep down we know that there is a certain measure of truth in it. Because it's easy, isn't it? It's easy and willing to speak to certain people. But it's also easy not to be so willing to speak to others. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we we admit, don't we, that we are quick to judge people. We're quick to discriminate between them. So then what does a healthy gospel-shaped church look like? And what's it mean to be a member of one such church? Well, that's what this series is all about. And Jonathan last week spoke from Matthew 25, and he gave us three implications of what it means to be a member of a gospel-shaped church. He said this, to belong to Christ is to belong to his people. We can't, in normality, be an isolated believer. We need each other. And to serve Christ, we need to serve his people. And to love Christ is to love his people. Now, tonight's passage that we've got in front of us in James builds upon what Jonathan was speaking of last week, on how we are to treat each other. Now, as I said, it's written by James. He was called James the Just. He was Jesus' brother, and he was the leader of the Jerusalem church. And he was writing to Jewish believers 
those that would have been very familiar with the theology and practice of the law of God given by God to Moses. And this this book that we've got, this epistle in James, is very much a practical document of how believers are to act out their faith. So let's have a look at what James actually says. Have a look firstly at uh, James 1. Look at James chapter 1. Because his first instruction is that they are to listen to the word of God. Verse 19, they are to listen to the word of God. Everyone to be quick to listen. Now, we as evangelicals, of course, are very happy about this, and we are very comfy with this, because it forms a major part of our belief and our behavior in church. But if we move on to verse 22 of chapter 1, he goes on to say, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Do what it says. The listening and reading, of course, will lead to faith. But faith without actions is pretty hopeless and it won't lead to blessings. So he says in verse 27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after the orphans, the widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. In other words, we are to look after the poor and the vulnerable and this should be a part of the life of the gospel church. And this is the background to this passage that we've got in front of us, chapter 2, four, verses 1 to 10. This is how we are to be a welcoming church, a purity of people that follow God and act upon his instructions. But who were the members of this church? Well, James explains this in verse 1 of chapter 2. Look what he says. He says, My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, he states that they are followers of the glorious Lord Jesus, and so emphasizes who it is that they're actually following. First he calls Jesus Lord. Now we might find, we might not think, well, that's nothing strange about that. We're used to that in our church today. But bear in mind that James was the Lord's brother. He was also, by all accounts, a very strict Jew, known amongst his own people as James the Just because of his respect for the law given to Moses and the customs of his people. Yet here he's calling his brother Jehovah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's nothing found anywhere else in the New Testament more glorious than this, that James of all people, James who had shared the same house, the same table, the same upbringing, who had seen him from the inside, knew all his quibbles, worshipped him as the one God. He calls him Jehovah. So that's the first thing. He calls Jesus Jehovah. But perhaps the second is even more remarkable thing because it concerns the statement in verse 1. And it's the statement that James uses the word glory. What James is literally saying is, don't hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glory, with partiality. 
Now, the authorized vision uses the word Lord of glory as a parenthesis. But the word Lord is actually no part of the original text. The NIV, too, has faltered and simply says, Our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. What that has done is turned the noun into an adjective and so taken away some of the force of that word. Because what James is doing here is a remarkable thing. He is calling Jesus the glory, the Shekinah. Now, this glory was a great part of the Old Testament concept. It was a part of the messianic hope. God has said, I will be the glory in their midst, Zechariah chapter 2. John, in uh, John 1, 14, says this, We beheld his glory as he dwelt amongst us. He speaks of the glory dwelling, reminding us of the glory that dwelt in the temple when Solomon dedicated the temple. The glory of the Lord filled it. And this glory came to be called the Shekinah, from the Hebrew word to dwell. And so the Shekinah was the glory. The Shekinah was God manifested onto the earth's face. And Jesus is calling, uh, James is calling Jesus the glory. So it's not simply that Jesus was glorious. It's not that he merely possessed glorious. He is the glory of God. And so we see here a testimony of the deity of Christ in this very short sentence. And so the people that James is writing to were followers and worshippers of the glory, Jesus Christ. And as I was thinking and praying about this, I wondered, do we count ourselves as followers and worshippers of the glory, the wholeness of God? Because this should influence how we worship him in church, and how we behave in our daily lives. And so James writes that as followers of this glorious Jesus, they are to act in a totally different way to that of their culture. And so by implications are we too as well. If we acknowledge the lordship of this glorious Jesus within church, then we will be different. Now, of course, their culture in James's time and the culture of the New Testament was very polarised. There was the rich, there was the poor, there were the slaves and the free men, there were the Jews and the Gentiles. And they were called to act in a very different way, as we are. In other words, we are called to be different to our culture because we worship and follow the all-powerful, glorious God, Jesus. So then, when what was uh, James's first instruction? Well, his first instruction was... Oh, sorry, went wrong this morning as well. Uh, the first instruction was, don't show favouritism or partiality. Now, favoritism means judging something according to an outward appearance. And so Jesus says in John 7, verse 24, stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. Now, James' instructions in this passage appear rather negative to us. 
but we can apply them in a positive way. But they also, of course, reflect the culture of his day. Because within that culture, there were the very rich. Now, the very rich would have been the emperor and his retinue. And then there was the rich, and the rich were the people who were landowners. But the vast majority of people, and almost certainly most of the church in Jerusalem, were what we would think of as poor. They owned no land, and they had few personal possessions, and they spent most of their income on life's daily necessities. And James points out in verses 2 to 5 that the common human tendency is to show deference to those who show visible signs of wealth and disdain for those who seem to be of a lower class. Now, the value of this illustration is that it's a commonplace occurrence. It happens all the time. Attention to social class, of course, was a part of the world in which the epistle of James was written. Wealth and influence typically went together. And those who had wealth expected to be welcomed and to receive certain privileges. It was widely understood that the poor, lower-class people did not deserve the same respect. But, and this is James's point, a part of the gospel, good news of the gospel, is that in Christ Jesus, social barriers lose much of their strength. Now, it's not just found here. Paul writes the same things. In fact, he writes into the Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, we may not think of social class as a problem within our society and certainly not within the church today. But it's worth asking ourselves, isn't it, how comfortable are we when encouraging people who are visibly different? Maybe they belong to a different social class. It may be that they have different appearances. They have tattoos, hairstyles, clothes. They may have different educational levels. They may live and speak differently. They may have no experience of what's expected of them within a church meeting. Now, of course... We realise, don't we, that our friendships are often based upon lines created by income or education or professional status. We may also give more respect to those that have higher levels of education or jobs or, or positions within Christian community. Perhaps we do not say to a poorly dressed person, stand there or sit at my feet but we may well leave them, by sta- leave them standing by saying nothing at all to them. We may well ignore them. But, James, by asking what, whether character really follows class lines, James does his best to mess up the unspoken assumption that the wealthy person is good and the poor person is bad. Now, his goal is not to create a simple role reversal in which the poorly automatically becomes virtuous and the wealthy inevitably becomes uh, evil. But he does point out how quickly assumptions break down if one asks whether the faith has a place amongst the poor. Assumptions also break down even more quickly by asking about the behaviour of the rich. 
Are the rich ever self-serving, controlling, obsessed with lawsuits that are designed to work the system in their favour? Well, James assumes that the answer is yes. Because when you think about it, the Christians in Jerusalem, who were basically poor, ought to identify with the destitute man who enters their congregation. He may be any one of them, denied a few days' work by a bad harvest or injury or just plain bad luck. Yet, instead, they cast their entire almost desperate hope on the individual who appears to have what they lack. Noticed, this individual is not a rich man. He's not called a rich man. It's only, called, it's only stated that he was sumptuously dressed. And so in their eagerness to curry favour with the well-off, they slight the one with whom they should be in solidarity. But it's also valuable at this time, I think, to consider a story of of Jesus teaching in the Gospels at that time. If you think back to uh, Luke's Gospel, Luke 16, the description of the man's clothing and finery calls us to mind the similar description of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. A story that illustrates straightforwardly a reversal of fortunes after death, with the poor man being favoured and the rich man suffering in agony. We see here that God's judgment is to be very is to be the opposite to that of the world. God's judgment is that opposite to that of the world. And of course, this is a question of judgment here, isn't it? It's a question of how do we judge others? If you remember, if you were with us last week, Jonathan spoke about judgment as well. And he said that no one from the front is a judge. We're not judging anybody. It's only God that judges. And so, how we treat people shows how we are judging them. James II suggests it's absurd to flatter the rich and despise the poor. There's a saying, isn't it, that money talks, but it carries no weight in eternal things. So it begs the question, of course, then, how does God judge? How does God judge? Well, this passage in James suggests completely opposite to that of the world. James' reasons as to why God's people should be different are given in verse 5. Look what he says in verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who loved him? God sees the hearts of all of us, of mankind. He sees the intentions, the motives, and the faith. And those that are poor have faith. And they're not reliant upon their learning, their wealth, or their power that the rich tend to do, who are not reliant upon God's gift of faith. And James points these Christians to the reasons why they shouldn't discriminate between people. Look at verses 9 and 10. The law of God states that they are to love their neighbour as themselves, which they will be breaking if they show snobbery and discrimination within the church. 
Now, at this point, John, uh, at this point, James calls the readers back to the central teachings of faith. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 8. Now, there's nothing remarkable in this, of course, because the Gospels and the letters of Paul lift up the centrality of this same command. We read in Matthew 22, Romans 13, Galatians 5. But what characterizes James's use of this commandment is its practical application to ordinary life. He puts all of us into an uncomfortable position by pointing out that if you really follow Jesus, you presumably believe the commandment to love one's neighbor is important. And if you believe that, then why would you be so solicitous towards those above you on the social scale and indifferent towards those below you? Now, this command, of course, of loving your neighbor calls for action and not just acquiescence. The gospel-centered church should be the place where practical actions of the members show the outworking of this law, to love one's neighbor as oneself. Now, this, of course, ought to influence how we run our church and our church programs. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we were here on the Wednesday evening looking at welcoming, and we listed a whole range of things, programs that we do in our church, and all of them are very good. But as I was thinking about this, I was wondering, are they inclusive? Are they showing God's love and our love for all? And the same applies to our services. Do they reflect this? Yes, they are planned for the congregation of believers. We're all here together believing. But how do we make them accessible to all levels of understanding? For instance, in the use of language as an example. Well, James has a disconcerting way of pressing the question. He assumes that people can rationalize remaining comfortable within the confines of their social class. He assumes that people might think, well, okay, I see your point, but I do pretty well on the whole, so don't bother me with this. I try to keep most of the Ten Commandments and let the rest go. James wonders, so which commandments don't count? Adultery is okay if you don't commit murder. And this, of course, brings him to the heart of the matter, which is the notion of faith that is too small. Look at James 2, verses 14 to 17. If faith is reduced to saying a few words like, I believe in something, then the expression of faith can be reduced to a few words like telling a homeless person, have a nice day. For James, faith begins with the word, the word of God that gives us new life. And as he said earlier in chapter 1, verse 18, And if that word from God gives people life, then those who live out that word extend life to others. Faith is what is active in a person's life. Faith is what is active in a person's life. Actively giving life to you and to those around you. If it's not active, it is not faith. 
Now, one might wonder, as you look at this passage, these 10 verses, what is the good news in this passage? Well, the passage, of course, is unrelenting, isn't it, in the way it goes after the question of what it means to live as a person of God, to be a part of the gospel church. And it doesn't let us off the hook. One response is that James clearly spoke the good news in the previous chapter, where he spoke about the generous gifts of God, verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. But another response is that James refers, reframes the question. He wonders, where is the good news for our neighbour? James wants the good news to be experienced by each believer and through each believer to the many others who need a tangible expression of grace. So what then should we be doing? Well, surely, loving our neighbour, keeping all of God's laws, not in a theoretical way, but in a practical way. So as we seek to extend our welcome to others, to show Jesus' love for all who enter here, then we can consider what practical steps we take to show them that Jesus loves them as much as he loves us. So if we, let's finish off with this question then that I asked at the beginning. What does a gospel-shaped church look like? What's it mean to be a member of a gospel-shaped church? Well, surely it means to be... It means to be uh, one in which it's filled with people who believe in and worship Jesus Christ the glory. And all that entails as we bow our heads in worship of the glorious God who created all things for his glory. That's every star and planet, everything. But secondly, we should show it means to be, uh, who, a gospel church means to be a place where its members act out their faith the command to love one another through the help of the Holy Spirit who will inspire and strengthen us. But thirdly, it'll be a place which welcomes all who come through the doors to hear the good news that Jesus died for each person. So if that is what the gospel-shaped church should be like, we can rejoice tonight, can't we, as we come to communion? We can rejoice that we have the place to offer to people. We've got the good news that Jesus died for each one of us. We're all sinners, but we all can come before God through the cross of Jesus Christ. And I think that's just a fantastic message that we've got to give to the community in which we live, to places where we work, to the schools we go to, the universities we go to, or whatever we are doing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for James who lived in a very different age and culture to us. We don't have slaves and freemen in the same way, but perhaps we do have Jews and Gentiles or differences between groups of people. Help us, Lord, to treat each one with love, the love that you gave first. 
as you died on the cross for each one of us. Amen.